Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his tragic sense of life, Miguel de Unamuno is going to say something in chapter two that many readers will probably prove a bit of a shock, perhaps even a scandal or a stumbling block. He's going to tell us that reason is a social product. And now remember, he's telling us this you know, over a hundred years ago, and in a context in which European culture and and the culture of the West has really become self-aware of how contingent it is, not just including its technological developments, but perhaps we might even say the technology of the human mind. And that would include the faculty of reason. A lot of people, when they hear people saying things like reason is a social product, are very worried that we're denying that there's anything in human beings that's determinative, that's universal. We're saying it's all just purely cultural, that reason would be, as we say, socially constructed. And Unamuno thinks that, you know, like a lot of people point out that saying something is socially constructed doesn't mean it's just purely a product of culture. Unamuno would would actually agree with them, and he's following to some degree as well in the footsteps of genealogists like Nietzsche in pointing this out, and perhaps you could also say Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but he's got a somewhat different take on it. And why do we get so worried in hearing this sort of thing? Because of two big issues. One is that there's a tendency to see reason or rationality as what is distinctive about us as human beings, as opposed to other animals. How are we not the same thing as whatever animals happen to be? Vital complexes, meat machines, pick whatever theory you like. How is there a distinction between us? But then the other big thing is this tendency to see reason in a very abstract way as something that's like totally universal. Every human being has a faculty of reason and that faculty of reason has to be more or less the same in everybody. I mean, some people, obviously children, it's not completely engaged, but it's there in potential and it'll come into actuality. But we also see it as like completely individuated. So like reason exists in this person here and in this person here. And that's where the total likeness comes about. And if you think about that idea, that's a crazy idea. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. We do all sorts of testing on people, and those tests are at best proxies for what happens to be going on in their brains at this particular point in time when they sit down in this artificial condition to take those tests. We can theorize about there being like a universal faculty of reason in every single human being, but it's not like a motherboard that's been churned out in a factory and should have exactly the same parts. Although, as we know, this is the whole reason customer service exists for computer companies. That's not the case. There's always things going wrong as well. So let's come back to Unamuno's view. He says, reason, the distinguishing mark of the human being, according to most philosophers, obviously he thinks that affectivity is just as important, is a social product, he says. Why? He says, we don't live alone. We're not an isolated individual, but a member of society. 
There's not a little truth in the saying that the individual, like the atom, is an abstraction. Yet, yes, the atom apart from the universe is as much an abstraction as the universe apart from the atom. And the individual maintains their existence by the instinct of self-preservation. Society owes its being and maintenance to the individual's instinct of perpetuation, love, right? And he says, from this instinct, or rather from society, springs reason. And then he, he's got this phrase, reason, that which we call reason, reflex and reflective knowledge. The distinguishing mark of man is a social product. You don't get reason as reason apart from people living in society and developing within society. So he's got some interesting theorizing here about language and probably the key element of that is articulateness. He says that perhaps reason owes its origin to language. We think articulately, that is reflectively, thanks to articulate language. And this language, why do we have language in the first place, arose out of the need of communicating our thought to our neighbors. You have language so that you can communicate. You don't first have a faculty of language and then you're like, oh, well, this would be really handy for communicating. No, it arises out of a situation that's already social in which we're involved with others, other human beings who are not the same as ourselves. And we have to communicate meaning, the meaning of our thoughts, the meaning of, hey, watch out for that fire, the meaning of, you know, that saber toothed tiger, let's go kill him or run away from him or whatever it happens to be. So he says, to think is to talk with oneself, and each one of us talks with himself, thanks to our having had to talk with one another. We are not first and foremost isolated, individuated things that only then begin to communicate with others. First, we're in a situation of communication. And then we start to say things like, I and you, and I want you to give me that thing over there, or whatever else it would happen to be. So he says, in everyday life, it frequently happens. We hit on an idea we are seeking and then succeed in giving it form. That is, we obtain the idea, drawing it forth from the midst of dim perceptions, which it represents, thanks to the efforts which we make to present it to others. So reason is, is as he says, social and common, a fact pregnant with consequences, he says. Reason is both social and common. Now, he also says something else that's quite fascinating about not just language and, and reason, but what makes us who we are. So he, he's talking here, and this is also in chapter two, about reason right, and imagination. Now, typically in philosophical anthropology, that is in, or philosophical psychology, arrangements of the, the faculties and understanding of them, typically we've said that imagination is less important than reason or intellection, that imagination can go wrong so Descartes, for example, will be a representative of somebody who really says imagination, that's where, where we, we get all of our mistaken ideas from. Reason will lead us to, to the right stuff. Reason removes itself from imagination, and that's how it works better, or intellection, however you want to put it, cognizing. So that's not actually the case for Uramuno. He's telling us something quite different. He says that this social sense the creature of love, the creator of language, of reason, and of the ideal world that springs from it, is at bottom nothing other than what we call fancy or imagination. Now notice the prioritization in there. The creature of love, the creature of the desire to reproduce, this attraction and affection that we have for other members of our species, this social sense is a product of that, and that it also creates language and reason over and over again within us. 
That is fancy or imagination. So that's basing everything on something that a lot of people would find quite, quite disreputable, quite dangerous. He says, out of fancy springs reason. And if by imagination is understood a faculty which fashions images capriciously, I'll ask, what is caprice? The senses and reason are also fallible. Caprice means arbitrariness, contingency, things just happening to turn out that way. Whim is another word for caprice. And so you could say, well, imagination is capricious, so we shouldn't trust it. But so what? If imagination is capricious, so is reason. So are the senses. We have to trust something. So maybe our freedom actually lies to some degree in that capriciousness. He also talks about this as an inner social faculty, the imagination which personalizes everything. And he talks about it, you know, as, as like revealing to us uh, God and the immortality of the soul and then says God is so a social product for that reason, right? We're going to put that aside and just think about this. An inner social faculty that personalizes everything. Part of what it means to live in, in a world informed by the imagination is that, and this may be wrong sometimes, we attribute a kind of agency and personality to things other than ourselves, other than animals, and we even do this with ideas. So that is an important aspect of this. And, and you can, you can see this sort of going on even in the most hardcore supposed rationalist. They treat reason itself as if it's a deity who tells us things. So they're really relying on the imagination as well. And he's got a chapter about the rationalist called The Rationalist Dissolution. He talks about how rationalists can sometimes be rabidly anti-theist. He talks about an anti-theological fury, right? And that's kind of irrational too. And then he says, those who don't succumb to that are bent on convincing human beings that there's motives for living and consolations for having been born, even though there shall come a time at the end of some tens or hundreds or millions of centuries when all human consciousnesses have ceased to exist. This is what he says some call humanism. And then he says that this is the amazing product of the affective and emotional hollowness of rationalism and its stupendous hypocrisy. A hypocrisy bent on sacrificing sincerity to veracity, sworn not to confess that reason is, and here's a key phrase, a dissolvent and disconsolatory power. And again, we can liken Unamuno here to Kierkegaard or Dostoevsky or Nietzsche, these earlier existentialists who very clearly realized that rationality doesn't always, if we follow it out culturally, doesn't always provide us with, you know, sort of an optimistic point of view. As a matter of fact, reason, this is part of what Kant was actually demonstrating, can show us the limits of reason and the imagination and the understanding and how easily we go wrong. And Nietzsche blew that up on a sort of social level as well. There were others before them in, in whom, you know, we could say we can see something similar going on. So rationalists don't realize what reason is really up to in some cases. Unamuno himself in a really key chapter at the center of the work called In the Depths of the Abyss, tells us a bit about his own project in a very important way that ties in with reason. So he tells us here, he who looks for reasons, strictly so-called scientific arguments, technically logical reflections, may refuse to follow me further. Anybody's right. You don't have to read the book. You don't have to continue out of the argument, right? Reason doesn't actually compel us 
in the ways that people think it does. He says, throughout the remainder of these reflections on the tragic sense, I'm going to fish for the attention of the reader with a naked, unbaited hook. Whoever wishes to bite, let him bite, but I deceive no one. And he goes on and he says, if in that which follows you shall meet with arbitrary apothegms, brusque transitions, in consecutive statements, veritable somersaults of thought, do not cry out that you've been deceived. We're about to enter if it be that you wish to accompany me, on a field of contradictions between feeling and reasoning, and we shall have to avail ourselves of the one as well as of the other. We need both reasoning and feeling in order to make progress in philosophy. And then he says, that which follows is not the outcome of reason, but life. Though in order that I may transmit it to you, I will have to rationalize it after a fashion. And then here, after referring to Walt Whitman... <laughs> He actually says that I'm not the begetter of the fancies I'm about to set forth. By no means, they've also been conceived by other men, if not precisely by other thinkers, who have preceded me and who have exhibited their life and given expression to it. So again, reason as a social product coming out of the fancy, relying on some of the insights of others is a part of being rational. Here's the crux of, of where he's going. Does this mean that in all that follows in the efforts of the irrational to express itself, there's a total lack of rationality? No. The absolutely irrevocably irrational is inexpressible, is intransmissible. And here he coins an important phrase. But not the contra-rational. So there's a difference between the irrational and the contra-rational. He says... Maybe there's no way of rationalizing the irrational, but there is a way of rationalizing the contra-rational. That is by trying to explain it. Once again, the act of communicating with another person is part of how rationality plays itself out. He says, since only the rational is intelligible, really intelligible, since the absurd being devoid of sense is condemned to be incommunicable, you will find that whenever we succeed in giving expression and intelligibility to anything apparently irrational or absurd, we invariably resolve it into something rational, though that it be into the negation of that which we affirm. So this tells you what his own process and self-understanding of the product in this book is intended to be. Reason is understood as not something that we just have, you know, fortunately within ourselves as like our own set of tools. No, it's something that we share with others by virtue of the fact that we are social creatures and we also have this imagination, which could be an individual imagination. It could be the imagination of others that we rely upon, or it could be some sort of social imagination. So this is a very nuanced and I would say arguably important conception of reason, rationality, that which is supposed to be essential to human beings. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.